0: Hi, everybody. I'm Alistair Stevens, and welcome to There and Back Again. This is the 17th session in our exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth, and this, well, this is an unusual one for a couple of reasons. It's an unusual one, firstly, because we're going to be discussing the second chapter of The Fellowship of the Ring, one of the most important chapters in the entire book. We're going to be discussing The Shadow of the Past, and it's also an unusual session because it is currently, here in Oklahoma City, 9 a.m. This is Going to have kind of a different energy. I suspect not least of all because I have, unlike my my usual sessions where I have a glass of wine, I have a cup of coffee here this morning. So expect me for once to talk rapidly and cover a lot of material, I suppose. And that's good because goodness knows I have a lot of material to cover. I have I think fifteen or sixteen slides pulled from this chapter, and I could have pulled five more. I'll just warn you right up front: there's a decent chance that your favorite excerpt from this chapter won't actually be on a slide today because. I could have spent two sessions covering this chapter very, very easily. I could have spent two sessions covering this chapter, but since my American Gods series storms on the way has already fallen into riotous disrepair in terms of the schedule, I, I need to exert some kind of control, some kind of some kind of uh, reliability here in my uh, in my seminar scheduling. So we're going to we're going to cover the entire chapter in one session. It's going to be just fine, you guys. We're going to move swiftly, but with great purpose. And we'll get through everything that we have to cover. I see a bunch of new people here in the YouTube chat, which is fantastic. It is a pleasure to have you all here. One of the reasons that I want to move these sessions around is so that people in other time zones and people with less predictable or less conventional schedules can make it here for the live chat. So it's great to have everybody here. Are we getting a little audio lag? I'm terribly sorry. That's, um, is it audio lag? Yes. YouTube, you guys, YouTube is oftentimes a little unreliable. That will usually sort itself out, but if not, then there's the podcast version that you can listen to, I guess. You can download the podcast version when it's available later today and then sync it up with the video version, and it'll all work out beautifully. Probably, probably, probably. All right. <laughs> Daniel says, I know they say a wizard is never late, but Alistair is late. I'm so There is literally nothing I can do about audio lag. You guys, I'm terribly sorry. I can perhaps try and reset my... Microphone, this is not going to sound good for you for just a second. I do apologize. But I should be able to reset. That should sound terrible. And then when I get back, that might just force it to behave itself. You can also just try hitting refresh. Sometimes refreshing the page will force the two streams back in alignment with one another. But uh, yes, it will probably... The audio (laughs) arrives precisely when it means to, says Rob. but Yes. (laughs) So let's get into it, Um, though we have before we get into our discussion today, before we get into our discussion of the second chapter, a couple of things that I want to kind of outline, a couple of things that I want to gloss so that we are properly equipped to discuss this chapter, because this is one of those chapters which um, is, is apt, I think, to be somewhat misread. There are certain inferences which it is very easy to draw from this chapter, which we ought not to draw. So I want to frame this a little bit. We're going to talk a little about the the timeline and about the history of the ring. And then we're going to look at the poem. We're going to look at the the poem of the One Ring, which actually in most editions of The Lord of the Rings now appears as, as the very first thing that you will read. So while in the linear chronology we won't get to it until the middle of this chapter... I think it's good to kind of have this in our mind before we begin chapter two, not least of all because it foreshadows uh, a reference to Mordor that we get very, very early in the chapter. And for most people reading The Lord of the Rings, this will not be their first you know, reference to Mordor. They will have heard the name Mordor before in the poem which begins the book. So we'll get to all of that in just a second. But as I said, we'll begin with, uh, with some timeline material. And I guess it's important when we're thinking about the the timeline of of Middle-earth, to be aware of the way that the ages move, the way that that time itself is separated. The Third Age, the current age of Middle-earth, begins with the defeat of Sauron at the Battle of the Last Alliance, actually at the siege of uh, Baradur. Uh, Isildur took up the shards of his father's sword, Narsil, and cut from Sauron's finger the One Ring. The end of that war is the beginning of the Third Age. We'll look at the history of the ring in just a moment, but I want to look first at the ages of some of our hobbits, because we mentioned last time that that some time has passed now since the long-expected party, and it is important, I think, that we have a firm hold on our hobbits, on our main cast here, and, and how they are different from one another. So Bilbo returns home from his adventure to the Lonely Mountain in 2942 of, of the Third Age. That's that's man reckoning that's that's the third age calendar shire reckoning is slightly different shire rec- the shire was founded in 1600 of the third age so in order to get date from Shire Reckoning, you just subtract 1600 from the third age date. In order to get a third age date from a Shire Reckoning date, you just add 1600. It's very easy, very straightforward. It's all fine. So Bilbo returns home in 2942. In 2968, Frodo is born. In 2980, Sam is born. In 2982, Mariadic Brandybuck is born. In 2990, Peregrine Took is born. In 3001, Bilbo turns 111 years old and leaves the Shire. In 3018, Gandalf returns to the Shire and tells Frodo about the One Ring. This is where we are now. Thus, it has been, as we start this chapter, 76 years since Bilbo got the Ring and 17 years since the long-expected party. That's important. It matters that this much time has passed. And certainly, if you're coming to The Lord of the Rings with a knowledge of the Peter Jackson movie adaptations it isn't at all clear that any time has passed or any significant amount of time has passed between the party and Gandalf's return. And that does change things a little. Though, of course, time is enormously mutable in the Peter Jackson movies. We'll talk about those when we get to them about, you know, 18 months or two years from now. Um, so the ages of our, our core cast here. Frodo is, as we're told here, 50 years old. Now, 50 for hobbits is not quite what 50 would be for a man. 54 hobbits is maybe 30 it kind of has that feel it's that putting aside you know all childhood kind of moving into your your mature adulthood you're no longer in a transitional phase you are now assured and adult and and ready to take up the responsibilities of life though it's fascinating that we're told that this is the age that Bilbo was when Adventure came knocking on his door, that we're getting ever closer to that, and Frodo is very aware of that. So Frodo is 50, Sam, as we begin this part of the story, is 38, Merry is 36, and Pippin is 28 years old, which, for a hobbit, is basically a teenager. Um, We are going to see from Pippin later in the story some very impetuous, very youthful behavior. And it serves us well to remember that Pippin is a kid. Pippin is basically half Frodo's age. That's important to remember as we move forward. And we must remember, too, that Frodo is simply more mature. He is separated from Sam by social class, as we discussed extensively in the last session, but he's separated from Mary and Pippin by almost a generation. I mean, he is simply older. He has had more experience. He is much closer to Bilbo than they are. They know Bilbo, I mean they know him personally, obviously, but but they know him primarily from reputation. If we think Pippin is 28 years old now and the unexpected uh, the long expected party, excuse me, was 17 years ago, Pippin's personal memory of Bilbo must be basically nothing basically nothing so it's important to remember how much time has passed and and where we are in the chronology here um let me catch (laughs) oh pippin is such a baby says princess princess ostrich echoing uh, uh, heroes and bards here in the youtube chat yes yes um we're talking about dating hobbits is that where we are now (laughs) I'm kind of into that. I'm kind of into that. Yes. Oh, Diane says, my four-year-old cousin is playing outside the window. He could take the role of Sam. Just keep an eye out for his clippers. If he is still cutting the grass, then you're fine. If he stops, it's because he's eavesdropping on stories of elves, though your house may not even have eaves. David asks, I wonder what a hobbit date looks like, just hanging out at the Green Dragon. That's very good. Um, Emily says, I can't imagine a hobbit date without food and drink being very involved. Yes. Interesting. 50 is when they become, quote, sensible, says Jackie Bowman. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. A Hobbit date without food, says Shane, is a deal breaker. And Tom says a hobbit date would definitely involve the close inspection of prize-winning vegetables. <laughs> yes, very likely. Very yes, I imagine a lot of a lot of uh a lot of genteel fates and things like that, a lot of a lot of uh, village fairs. Um It's interesting because, again, this is one of those elements of Hobbit culture that we just simply have no idea about. I mean, how on earth did Bungo Baggins and Belladonna Took meet, let alone fall in love, let alone get married? My inclination would be, given the kind of presumptions that Tolkien seems to make about the nature of life in the Shire, my my inclination would be toward a kind of, a kind of Jane Austen formal dances, you know, formal declarations. You should ask the parents, etc., etc., etc. At least among the gentle hobbits. Certainly among the the working class blue collar hobbits, things would be presumably a little less formal, uh, a little more, uh, a little more modern, we might say. But um, yeah, it, it would be interesting to speculate, and we will have a chance to talk very obliquely, very fleetingly, very, very limitedly uh, about Hobbit romance right at the end of the book, of course. No boat rides, though, says Shane. Far too scandalous. Yes. And Jackie says, if a Hobbit date is like Sam and Rosie's understanding, you just go to her family's pub and smile at her from across the room. There are worse ways to do it. I guess there are worse ways to do it. All right. Uh, oh, and Kate says, the Hobbits definitely do festivals like May Day Dances, right? I mean, presumably they, they would have to. Uh, the, the long expected party is singular and endures in the memory and the imagination, but it doesn't seem to be one-off event the hobbits are very familiar with parties now we know that they have lavish birthday parties in which gifts are given and we know that because of that uh that societal convention basically every day you're going to get a gift from someone you're going to even in a relatively small relatively tight-knit community it's going to be someone's birthday most days so you're going to have this kind of convivial communal atmosphere but certainly most of what we see from from hobbit um recreation activities most of what we see of of hobbit leisure time i suppose is very much in the order of of kind of idyllic british countryside leisure time so we're uh, we're never told that hobbits specifically play cricket i could easily imagine hobbits playing cricket i can imagine hobbits playing cricket with some warm beer in the sun it would just be a lovely day you know It, it is evoking that spirit of englishness and and of england yeah Okay, let's, uh, let's take a look then at our first slide. And as I said, we're going to go back a little before we go forward and we're going to begin with, well, perhaps the most famous part of the Lord of the Rings. Three rings for the elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their holes of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie one ring to rule them all one ring to find them one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of mordor where the shadows lie the most important thing to understand when you're looking at this poem is that it is basically Of the rings of Sauron's influence over the ring particularly yes the forging of the one ring but those two lines one ring to rule them all one ring to find them one ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them that is a direct quote of Sauron as he is crafting the ring this is the moment when the uh when the elves themselves learn that they have been betrayed learn that that Sauron's fell influence is corrupting the one ring which is why, by the way, it stands apart in terms of its meter too. This has a fairly simple and 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 rhythmic pattern throughout, but then we move into a different register for those two lines, and that gives it a uh, a driving, propulsive kind of kind of menacing quality. Three rings for the Elven kings under the sky. So. First of all, three rings are created for the elves, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die. These are the rings of power. These are all the rings of power. The one ring stands apart from the rings of power. Uh, I would call out there, nine for mortal men doomed to die. The word doomed there is oftentimes misinterpreted because the modern sense of the word doom of this this you know calamitous ruin this this outright destruction this, this hopeless lost cause that did not enter english until the 17th century and it entered english as an expansion of the idea of christian judgment the idea that ultimately judgment will be levied upon us and that will lead to this this you know what we would mean with the, the contemporary usage of the word doom that only entered English in the 17th century prior to that doom simply meant a judgment or a law or a rule and it's important to understand the position of man in the cosmology in the theology of art, of middle earth and doomed we say doomed here not because That is uh, a tragedy, not because that is a a terrible thing for mortal man. Rather, it's because that is their state. That is their condition. That is the law that governs mortal man. Are unique, possibly, arguably. We can talk a little about hobbits. We can speculate about dwarves. Though this seems to give us actually a fairly clean uh, perspective on what happens to dwarves when they die. It would seem as though dwarves are more on the elf side of things. That is to say that what what separates elves and men is that elves are of the world. They do not have an afterlife, for want of a better word. They belong in Arda. They are always going to be separated from Iluvatar, from God. Mortal men die and pass to their reward. This is the great blessing of mortal men, is that they will spend eternity in heaven. They get to go home after they die. And this is one of the reasons that that there is a, a certain tension between elves and men. That there is a certain—I uh, would hesitate to say envy. I don't think that elves are necessarily envious. But but this is one of the distinctions between the two. Um, Melissa says, "Are there men who aren't mortal?" Or who is writing this poem? No, I, I don't think that there are men who aren't mortal. I think that there are. I, I think that mortal men here is is tied very closely to that because, of course, we must remember the, the consequence of the ring. So nine for mortal men doomed to die. Mortal men are doomed to die. Mortal men are going to die and pass to their ultimate reward, except for those who wear the nine. Because of the corruption of Sauron, they will not die and move on to their ultimate reward. Instead, they will linger. They will be stretched like butter over too much bread, as Bilbo said in the last chapter. They will remain as a ringwraiths, as the Nazgul. That's the origin of of the Nazgul who will meet very soon, in fact, depressingly, frighteningly soon, in fact. So mortal men doomed to die is in direct opposition to the existence of the nine rings. One for the dark lord on his dark throne. This is the one ring in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. So we have this beautiful frame. So three rings for the elves, seven for the dwarves, nine for the men, one for the dark lord in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Okay, that's pretty punchy. That's pretty uh, pretty descriptive. We get a strong sense of of where the rings are and what the rings are, and that's all good. But then we transition into this this rhythmic, propulsive piece of poetry. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. And of course, I remember reading this poem, gosh, the first time that I read The Lord of the Rings, many, 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 many years ago, when I was a, I was a, a, a lumpen and callow youth, um, as <laughs> Tolkien would have said, I'm sure. Um, and I remember being somewhat frustrated that, that the one ring to rule them all, that's so good. The poetry there is so strong. The rhythm there is so strong. Why didn't Tolkien just continue? Why didn't he just do another pass on this? Why didn't he just revise this poem again and make it like a little better? Why didn't he just extend that rhythm through the whole thing? And of course, I now realize and have understood these many years that it is entirely deliberate. It is supposed to be disquieting. The introduction of that rhythm feels like the introduction of, of war drums or the introduction of a heartbeat. It's it's very powerful, yeah. Oh, Jackie here is is giving us the gloss of the uh, Jackie here is giving us the gloss of the history of the rings. Yes, I was going to talk about this a little later. Let me kill this slide here. I don't think we need this anymore. Uh, Sauron has the nine. He actually possesses the nine rings. The nine rings were given out to mortal kings. They were turned into wraiths. They were turned into the Nazgul, and Sauron then took them back. Though, and this is going to be relevant to a discussion that we will have later can't give them out again. Um, One of the possible explanations about Gandalf's uncertainty regarding the one ring is that maybe, maybe, maybe Sauron has taken one of the nine and distributed it again. We are told that of the seven dwarf rings, three have definitely been recovered by Sauron. We know that for sure. And the other four have all been consumed by dragon fire, which makes for a pretty good story, makes for a pretty good legend, doesn't necessarily tell us that that's, you know, that, that they are completely out of the game. I mean, Gandalf presumably didn't witness dragons destroying four dwarf rings. You know, even the wise in general, reliable sources all didn't witness the destruction of four dwarf rings. Though, even there, it's so good, you guys. It's so good that this connects back to the story of The Hobbit, that the idea that The dwarf rings were supposed to corrupt too. The dwarf rings were supposed to transform the dwarf lords into Nazgul too, or into the dwarf version of Nazgul too. but they didn't. They didn't work because dwarves are less susceptible to that kind of thing than men are. Pretty much everyone is less susceptible to that kind of thing than men are. But it is said that the presence of a ring heightens, uh, exaggerates dwarven avarice. At the heart of every dwarven horde, there is... A ring, that, that this is why dwarves accumulate gold and wealth. And of course, as we know, when you accumulate gold and wealth, you inside this is exactly how you get dragons, you guys, is the, do you want dragons? Because this is exactly how you get dragons. So the fact that the dwarf rings have been consumed by dragon fire actually speaks rather beautifully to the notion of dragon sickness and avarice and greed that we saw back in the pages of The Hobbit. The three elven rings are still protected, more on those later. And of course, the one ring, well, the one ring is curious. And and I guess I have a couple things to say about this. Um, Let me get my dates straight here. So the One Ring was forged around the year 1600 in the Second Age, which is about 5,000 years before this story begins, before the Lord of the Rings begins. Sauron bore it until the end of the Second Age when it was taken from him by Isildur during the siege of Barad-dûr. That was 3,000 years ago at this point. So Sauron creates the One Ring, Wears it for 2,000 years. No one else touches it. No one else, you know, goes anywhere near it. He wields it. And and at this point, of course, Sauron is is physically present in in Middle-earth. So he's wearing the ring for 2,000 years. It is cut from his hand by Isildur, who then takes it up and and claims it as his own. Isildur is the second ring bearer. Isildur wears the ring, carries the ring for two years until he is attacked by orcs at the Battle of the Gladden Fields, where he is slain and the ring is lost into the river Anduin. It stays in the river for two and a half thousand years before it is recovered by first Deagle, who claims it. He's, he's exploring the river, as we'll get the story from Gandalf within this chapter. Deagle is swimming and exploring the river, and he finds the ring and claims it. It is his ring. He is the third ring bearer. He is then murdered by Smeagol, who takes the ring. He is the fourth ring bearer. Smeagol is then driven out of his home. We get the story from Gandalf later, as I said. He's driven out of his home. He goes beneath the Misty Mountains. He is there for 500 years, a, a little over, well, a little around 500 years, depending on exactly how the timeline lines up. But he is the fourth ring bearer and becomes, of course, Gollum. He loses the ring to Bilbo, who is the fifth ring bearer. That's it. That's the entire history of the ring. Five ring bearers in, in all of history. Six, now that Frodo has taken it. Two, though Frodo's relationship with the ring is slightly different too. And we'll, we'll explore that. There are some very subtle hints in this chapter that, um, that make me wonder about Frodo's relationship with the ring and, and the degree to which Frodo is capable of resisting the ring. So when we talk about the ring having awareness and having agency and, and, and wanting things, apparently what the ring wanted was to lay on the bottom of a river for 2,500 years. What the ring wanted was not certainly to be wielded by a silder, terrible things presumably would have happened, terrible things from the perspective of the ring. Again, we can speculate about what, what he would have done with that, but... The ring wanted to lay on the bottom of the river for 2,500 years and then wanted to live in a cave for 500 years. Isildur had it for two years. Deagle had it for 10 minutes. Smeagol held it for 500 years. And Bilbo now has had it for 76 years. And well, I guess Bilbo had it for 50 years. Frodo's had it for 17 years. That's pretty much where we are now. And while we're talking about ring bearers, I invited a little criticism last time that we talked. I invited, I I deliberately provoked you all, and I can only apologize for that because I said very casually that Bilbo is the only person to ever willingly give up the ring, which is true. I will stand by that, but you need a certain kind of clarification there. Bilbo is the only ring bearer who has given up the ring. Other people have touched the ring and given it up, but the crucial distinction is that those other people have not claimed the ring gandalf holds the ring in this chapter he touches it he he has it in his hand in this chapter but we don't think of gandalf as a ring bearer because while he is holding it he never says this is my ring and i would oppose that with bilbo offering to give gandalf the ring at the end of the last chapter if gandalf takes the ring even you know for safekeeping if he holds it for frodo until frodo shows up gandalf has taken the ring he has claimed the ring and the ring can begin to exert its influence over him that seems to be important. Certainly, it's true that, that when the ring is taken in anger, when the ring is taken in in, in in fury, when the ring is taken with violence, then the ring has more power over the over the, the next ring bearer than it otherwise would. Certainly, we see that from Smeagol's perspective, that, that because he kills Deagle, the, the ring has enormous power over him immediately. Because Bilbo takes it and exercises pity, as we'll talk about in just a few minutes, and then uses the ring to help his companions, the dwarves, as was framed in the last chapter, then we have, there is less evidence of direct corruption. Bilbo manages to resist the ring for longer. Certainly Frodo too manages to resist the ring for longer. So claiming the ring, taking the ring, owning the ring, these things are important. So Gandalf holds the ring and gives it up. Sam will hold the ring and give it up. Tom Bombadil will hold the ring and give it up. But none of those three are ring bearers. So for me, they don't quite count in the same category. Bilbo is the only ring bearer to date who has given it up voluntarily. It was cut from the hand of Sauron. It was cut from the, the, the neck, I suppose, of, of Isildur. It was. Deagle was killed. It was stolen from Smeagol. And now Bilbo is the first person in its 5,000 year history to voluntarily surrender the ring. That is crucially important. The last thing in the world I want to do is diminish Sam's heroism in particular. You know, that is but it's but it is heroism of a slightly different sort. Not necessarily a different order or a different magnitude, but a slightly different sort. We'll talk about that, you know, a year from now. We've got lots of time before we get there. Okay. Let me see uh the YouTube chat. Let me see what is going on here. Um Kate says the ring always chooses to move, hoping to get back to Sauron. It doesn't always work. You see, I'm not sure that that's true. The ring wants clearly. The ring can, as as we're told, it, it, it is treacherous. It can slip from a finger. It can, it can roll away. It can try and escape. Though you know its history of doing that, not great. I mean, we can speculate that the orcs at the Gladden Fields were were. Provoked by the ring, you know that they had a, a a Boromir fury laid upon them, and and wanted the ring with such fury that they attacked Isildur and killed him, and the ring was simply lost. But is is that chance then? Is is the losing of the ring ra- of the ring into the river Anduin is that chance? Is that the intercession of of a kind of you catastrophic grace that we're keeping the ring safe? Why didn't an orc captain? pick up the ring why why didn't in, insert you know terrible calamitous disaster scenario here um what is what is the ring's actual purpose why then would the ring want to spend 500 years beneath the misty mountains it seems from the story that we're told that that Gollum is led under the mountains by the ring does the ring just want to hang out for a while is the ring just biding its time that is actually a decent explanation that that does make a certain amount of sense but you'll note too that we don't get we don't really get an account of the ring being used during Bilbo's time in the Shire. You know, he has the ring for 50 years um, and he doesn't seem to use it. And more importantly, the ring doesn't seem to be, to be want, uh, the ring doesn't seem to want to be used. The ring isn't inciting him. The ring isn't saying, hey, 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 all your neighbors, they have a, you know what you could do? Put me on, then we'll go prank Lobelia sackville Baggins. How about that? That would be pretty great, right? You know the spoons that she has? We could go get those back right now. The ring doesn't seem to be, suggesting to Bilbo the same kind of thing that it that it immediately suggested to Smeagol. So I'm not sure. And, and this is something that we'll just have to continue to track through the entire book. I really want to pay close attention to, to when the ring seems to want to take action um, and, and what we might infer from that. What is the ring's agenda? Does the ring really want to return to Sauron? Does it even have that degree of awareness? Well, we'll see as we move through. Yeah, um, okay. Let me see here. Maybe the ring was waiting for his master to wake," says Valerie. That is certainly that is certainly a possibility. Yes, um, though that suggests. I mean, wow, that suggests all kinds of things, doesn't it? Um, why then would the ring w- want to be found by Deagle? What happened five hundred years ago, prior to the rising of the necromancer in Merkwood, prior to you know the 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 corruption that we saw flow forth from that? Why then? Why wouldn't in that case? I mean. The Misty Mountains and Markwood are not terribly far apart. Why wouldn't the ring, if it could sense the rise of Sauron, urge Gollum to leave the Misty Mountains, go straight to Dol Guldur and surrender himself? These are interesting questions. I don't think that these are inconsistencies. My suspicion is that as we track the movement of the ring through the book, we're going to actually discover that the ring may have a slightly different agenda, that that we may see from the ring. Yeah, okay, I'll throw this out here. We may see from the ring kind of an inverse of that eucatastrophic impulse. Um, when we talked about the eucatastrophic impulse, uh, narratively speaking, we were talking about the intercession of grace. We were talking about the fact that that eucatastrophe happens within Tolkien's secondary creation because ultimately, ultimately, things turn to the good because ultimately the world is a good and just place. And sometimes that requires calamity, but there is also luck. There is also good fortune. There is also eucatastrophe. I'm beginning to suspect that if we track the ring very closely, and I should say, I don't know for sure. I've never done this. I'm doing this as I move through the book with you all, you know, as as a part of this series. Um, my suspicion is that as we track the ring, we're going to see something to the to the 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 contrary. We're going to see a kind of, uh, I guess it would simply be a catastrophic impulse, right? We we would see the intercession of of malice rather than the intercession of grace. So let's pay attention to that, guys. We are really not. Uh, we are really not making any progress through this week's session. There's a lot to talk about. Um, Jackie says, Sauron thought the ring had been destroyed by the elves. Everyone thought the ring had been destroyed. This is crucial. We're going to talk about this a little later, I guess. But um, everyone thought that the rings were accounted for. Everyone thought that the, 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 the good guys, the elves, the, the wise, the white council, everyone believed that the ring had been lost into the Anduin and swept out to sea and would never be seen again. It's been 2,500, it's been 3,000 years at this point. It's been 3,000 years since anyone even thought of the ring. No one has paid any attention to it. Saruman the White, as we're told within this chapter, his area of study are, are, are the rings. He pays more attention to the rings than anyone else, and he is certain and sure that the ring has gone, that the one ring has gone. It is no longer a factor. So when we're talking about Gandalf figuring out the ring, well. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it, I guess. Yes, okay. Excellent, excellent. The ring is evil like the desolation is evil, says Shane. Environmental. That's interesting. And Melissa asks, is the ring like a horcrux? Yes, basically yes. Um, Kind of? Kind of. Um, a one-to-one comparison will not serve you well there, but it is true that Sauron imbued the ring with some fraction of his power. Sauron is diminished because of the presence of the ring. And this is one of the things that will always afflict the forces of evil within the world of, of, of Middle-earth. Sauron creates the ring. He imbues the ring with some fraction of his power and then loses the ring. Ah, I am now less than I was. This is part of the reason why returning the ring, the ring itself is, of course, enormously powerful. It, it, it is a powerful magical artifact, but it carries within it a fraction of Sauron's essence power and because tolkien was so reluctant to to pin down like a a system of magic if tolkien had been a contemporary fantasy writer if he had been writing in the shadow of his own work as every other fantasy writer of the 20th century did then he would and also in the shadow of dungeons and dragons as every other contemporary fantasy writer did then he would have codified the rules of magic that seems to be something that that would had tolkien been writing 50 or 70 years later that would be something that had that, that would speak to him you know formalizing the rules of magic maybe not unlike formalizing the rules of a constructed language for example tolkien didn't do that he was deliberately loose on on what magic is he preferred words other than magic for example he preferred elfcraft and enchantment he preferred these more traditionally you know fairy words for associations with magic um and you'll you'll rarely see, if ever, outright magic spells in the d and d tradition or or even in the you know the tradition of Merlin. You'll rarely see that kind of spell casting. There are hints here and there, but usually magic is more subtle and magic is more treacherous. That's certainly true of the the imbuing of power into the one ring. Um, but it is the return of the ring to Sauron that will make Sauron completely unstoppable. There is just no hope. If Sauron gets the ring back, we are done, and we. Everyone else in Middle Earth is just done. So it's not just the Ring as a magical artifact, but it is also the separation of the Ring and Sauron. Sauron is diminished while the Ring exists. Okay. <laughs> Let me see here. Not really a Horcrux, says Jackie. Yeah, yeah, ish, ish, says Jackie. Yes, that's fair. Um, okay. Good. Let's get into this because, as I said, we're, we're thirty-five minutes in. You guys, we got a lot to cover. Um. Let's move to our, the first real slide then of the second chapter and look at the darkening world. Frodo began to feel restless and the old paths seemed too well trodden. He looked at maps and wondered what lay beyond their edges. Maps made in the Shire showed mostly white spaces beyond its borders. He took to wandering further afield and more often by himself, and Mary and his other friends watched him anxiously. Often he was seen walking and talking with the strange wayfarers that began at this time to appear in the Shire. There were rumors of strange things happening in the world outside, and as Gandalf had not at that time appeared or sent any message for several years, Frodo gathered all the news he could. Elves who seldom walked in the Shire could now be seen passing westward through the woods in the evening, passing and not returning. But they were leaving Middle Earth and were no longer concerned with its troubles. There were, however, dwarves on the road in unusual numbers. The ancient east west road ran through the Shire to its end at the Grey Havens, and dwarves had always used it on their way to their on, on their way to their mines in the Blue Mountains. They were the hobbits' chief source of news from distant parts, if they wanted any. As a rule, dwarves said little, and hobbits asked no more. But now Frodo often met with strange dwarves of far countries seeking refuge in the west. They were troubled, and some spoke in whispers of the enemy and of the land of Mordor. That name the hobbits only knew in legends of the dark past, like a shadow in the background of their memories, but it was ominous and disquieting. It seemed that the evil power in Mirkwood had been driven out by the White Council, only to reappear in greater strength than the old strongholds of Mordor. The dark tower had been rebuilt, it was said. From there, the power was spreading far and wide. And far away, east and south, there were wars and growing fear. Orcs were multiplying again in the mountains. Trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. And there were murmured hints of creatures more terrible than all these, but they had no name. We talked a little last time about the way in which the Lord of the Rings reframes the content of The Hobbit. It raises The Hobbit into a more mature uh, and, and certainly more operatic register. We're no longer concerned just with hobbits and hobbitry. Now there is a whole wide world out there and we're going to tell some stories about it. So there are some specific references here. I mean, we get the elves passing into the West, of course. We get the dwarves seeking refuge in the West, not the same West. The elves are going to the capital W West. The dwarves are going to the the Blue Mountains in the lowercase w West. Um, But we see here that the hobbits are still reclusive. The hobbits do not seek news, but Frodo does. Frodo is already exceptional. Then we get the hint of the enemy and the land of Mordor, which as I said, for most of us who read the book, we've already read the poem. We already have heard of Mordor and the Dark Lord where the shadows lie. It seemed that the evil power in Merkwood had been driven out by the White Council only to reappear in greater strength in the old strongholds of Mordor. The evil power in Mirkwood, of course, was the Necromancer. It was driven out of Dol Goldur by Gandalf and the White Council during The Hobbit. This actually takes place during the events of The Hobbit. We don't see it, uh, but, but it does happen. And we get, as I've said before, that wonderful line when we read the account of the Necromancer leaving barad that he feigned to flee, that he retreated to Mordor to regather his strength, to, to begin to unleash his strength. Time now has passed. Orcs are multiplying in the mountains again. Little hint there, orcs are multiplying again in the mountains, orcs and goblins, one and the same thing. Trolls were abroad, no longer dull-witted, but cunning and armed with dreadful weapons. This is a direct reappraisal. This is, I mean, this is about as close as we get to a retcon, probably, in Tolkien. And even then, it's still textual. We met trolls in the pages of The Hobbit, but trolls in the world now are not like those trolls. They are not going to be jovial and foolish and, and, and cockney. They're just not. Now they're dangerous and armed with dreadful weapons, which reminds us, of course, of the, the distinction between the goblins and the dwarves in The Hobbit, that the goblins, the orcs, create terrible weapons within their, their foundries, you know. Their industry is turned to warcraft. It is turned to, to destruction and, and murder. So this is the world that we're entering into right now. But we do one of my favorite transitions in in this book, we actually bracket the scene in The Green Dragon with, with two of my favorite transitions. The first transition takes us in, and we meet a character that I guess some people like quite a bit. I guess some people are kind of into Sam, I suppose, um, you know. Okay, before we get to that, Alan in the YouTube chat is asking, by what mechanism do trolls get smarter and more cunning? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, and we're about to talk too about um I, i'm going to skip over it because honestly if i pull up the slide we're going to spend an hour talking about it but um we're we're about to get to the discussion of giants of something walking in the north farthing we're going to get to the idea that that creatures are stirring and 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 rising and moving in the world even very close to the shire and Ultimately, we will learn that the Shire is in part protected, not by the Bounders, which is kind of adorable, but also by the actions of the Rangers, that the Rangers are actively protecting the Shire at this point. Um, why are the trolls more cunning? Well, it does seem as though the influence of Sauron can take some credit for that, I suppose. It can also mean that that the, the weapons themselves are are somehow having having an effect it's difficult to be sure again because magic is so squirrely in 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 middle earth it's difficult to be sure what exactly has has turned the trolls but certainly they are going to be i mean okay let's be completely candid here this is a retcon it super is because we don't want jovial dumb trolls that we had in the hobbit but we do really want trolls because trolls are cool and are a part of this world building and are, you know, an interesting kind of, of, of element, a, a component to Sauron's forces. We want trolls, but we've established trolls, so we're going to change trolls, but we're never really going to explain why. I think you can look at, if we assume that trolls and orcs are connected, that they are kind of, 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 of biologically connected, that is to say that they are innately evil, they are corrupted, they are not simply, they are not a natural race in the way that the elves or men or hobbits are. They're not even a fully autonomous race in the way that dwarves are. They are only ever servants of Sauron. And this is, there are some kind of trivial oppositions to Tolkien that involve allegations of, you know, racial insensitivity and racial prejudice and outright racism from, from, some, uh, from some critics of Tolkien. I don't think that's valid I, I don't really think that that's a valid interpretation because the orcs are not a race they are only servants of Sauron now that gets a little complicated because of course the goblins that we meet in the Hobbit do seem to have an internal culture they do seem to have some kind of um, some kind of, of cultural autonomy in that sense the goblins in the Hobbit are more of a distinct race than the orcs that we'll see in The Lord of the Rings. But even then, we can argue that because Sauron's influence has has waned and though the necromancer is rising in Mirkwood, he's not back yet. Um, I, I think that we can argue that the orcs are corrupted, that the trolls are corrupted. And thus, because they are corrupted and and tied somehow magically to Sauron's power, as Sauron resumes his his role, as he once again grows in his power, all of these creatures that serve him, all of the creatures that have been corrupted by him and, and are, are connected to him in that sense will rise in power too. That certainly seems to speak to the idea that, that again, evil falters in part because it expends itself in the creation of evil. You know, Sauron creates the rings, but then when he loses the rings, well, now he's diminished. Sauron imbues his forces with his own power, but as those forces falter, he himself is diminished. So there is a, a kind of um a kind of twisted version of secondary creation there, which is of course, you know, the foundational principle of 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 Arda of Middle-earth. So I can see something there, um, but I'm not entirely sure the mechanic by which, all of this is said, I'm not entirely sure. For me, it works kind of thematically, but is there an actual, you know, do we go and give the trolls, you know, the limitless pills? Do we go and say, you know, hey, trolls, did you know that you only use 10% of your brain? No, no, no. Put down that that dwarf. They really don't taste good. There was a cave full of like elven treasure right there. You could have used that. You could have bartered some of it for better food, if nothing else. I don't know. But the trolls certainly are now meaner. Functionally within the pages of the Lord of the Rings, the trolls are separate. They're just different. They're just they're they're not the same. And that's kind of fine. That's kind of fine. Um, let me see. Um, we're talking about the the yes, the yes, Diam says Sauron can't create his own stuff. He can only pervert what's there. Yes, this is um this is yes, exactly right. Because Sauron is corrupt because evil is corrupt. It cannot actually engage in secondary creation. And, and here's the distinction. As Tolkien uh, talks about in his poem Mythopoeia, creativity is a function of the original creative impulse. Basically, from, from Tolkien's conception, God is the only creative force. God creates everything. That white light, as Tolkien had it, is refracted through us prismatically and allows us to create, but we are only creating using that original creative impulse. We can refine it and and contain it and and move it and, and guide it, but it is not our creative impulse. But if you are cut off from that light, as Sauron is, as Morgoth was, then you can't use that light to create. So in order to create, you must expand your own internal energy. That's that's kind of the difference between the, those two creative impulses. Um, as Jackie says, the orcs are an example of the machinations of Morgoth, not a racist slur. It's a connection to Lucifer. Yes, good, good. Um, let me see. Is there something I need to settle here? Uh, I Wow, okay. We're talking about Sar- Um <sighs> Yes, okay. Let's do... We're talking about the deep history here. We're talking about the deep history of, of um. Of, we're talking about what Sauron is and what Gandalf is. And mm, I, I guess I don't really want to talk about the Maiar right now because I would like to hold that back probably until the Silmarillion, honestly. I think that's probably the best place to talk about that. And every week I bring up the fact that we're going to do the Silmarillion and it's just becoming more and more true the more that I say, it. okay, we really must, um yeah, we really must push on. um. Yes, Morgoth too. um. Okay, we need at the least to look at the Anna label. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely do that. Um, but I am halfway through my appointed time, and I have so many more slides to get to. So, let's go and meet Sam, shall we? Let's get into the uh, the green dragon here and talk with Sam. All the same, said Sam. You can't deny that others beside our Halfast have seen queer folk crossing the Shire, crossing it, mind you. There are more. Uh, there are more that are turned back at the borders. The Bounders have never been so busy before. And I've heard tell the elves are moving west. They do say they're going to the harbors, out out away beyond the white towers. Sam waved his arm vaguely. Neither he nor any of them knew how far it was to the sea, past the old towers beyond the western borders of the shire. But it was an old tradition that away over there stood the grey havens, from which at times elven ships set sail, never to return. They're sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They're going into the west and leaving us, said Sam, half chanting the words, shaking his head sadly and solemnly. But Ted laughed. Well, that isn't anything new if you believe the old tales and I don't see what it matters to me or you let them sail, but I warrant you haven't seen them doing it nor anyone else in the Shire. I apologize. As I'm reading that slide, I'm getting some technical difficulties here. So I was a little distracted while reading that slide, but I think everything is okay. Um, let me see here. Um, yes, yes. As David Hoffman says in the YouTube chat, Sam. Yes. Sam's, Sam's pretty good. Um, so this is our introduction to Sam, and we should, of course, acknowledge right up front that this is essentially a recapitulation of the discussion that we had in the previous chapter. In the previous chapter, we had Hamfast Gamgee, we had the gaffer sitting down with the miller and, of course, the stranger from Mikkel Dalving. So we have that generation offering their perspective on what has happened in the Shire. Now, 17 years later, we have Sam sitting down with Ted Sandyman, the miller's son. So two generations right here have I mean, of course, we must remember that that first discussion took place in the Ivy Bush. The second discussion takes place in the Green Dragon. So our location has changed too. I kind of like to think that the Ivy Bush is like the old man pub, and that the Green Dragon is like the hip place. There's like you know a dartboard and a jukebox and a pool table, and it's kind of just a little more chill if you like for the young hobbits. Um, <laughs> but we definitely have these two generations of, of, of basically fathers and sons having effectively the same discussion, or or at least a discussion that speaks to similar themes the world is getting darker outside the world is getting more dangerous sam here is is we we made the point about uh giants moving in the in the north farthing perhaps we could talk about that at some future point when we get to uh when we get to an opportunity to talk about that at some future point. Um, But Sam is saying here, you can't deny that others besides our half have seen queer folk crossing the Shire. Crossing it, mind you. There are more that are turned back at the borders. The Bounders have never been so busy before. And as I said earlier, the Bounders, this is quaint and fairly parochial, I suppose, Um, what's really protecting the Shire. We're not talking about, you know, a handful of hobbits with feathers in their caps and shiny little badges. We're talking about the rangers. They are protecting the Shire still. And I've heard tell that elves are moving west. They do say they're going to the harbors out beyond the White Towers. Sam waved his arm vaguely. Neither he nor any of them knew how far it was to the sea, past the old towers beyond the western borders of the Shire. But it was an old tradition that away over there stood the Grey Havens, from which at times elven ships set sail, never to return. The elves, as we've already been told by the narrator, are leaving. And Sam says, they're sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They're going into the West and leaving us. Half-chanting the words, we're told, shaking his head sadly and solemnly. There are two things that we learn here. The first is, of course, Sam's fascination with elves, that Sam is... Is interested in elves, that Sam has heard stories from old Bilbo, that, that, that Sam believes in elves in, in a very powerful way. He, he wants elves in a very powerful way. Um, he wants to, to, to know elves and to experience elves. But we get something equally important here. We know already that Bilbo taught Sam to read, but it seems as though Bilbo has taught Sam more than that. They are sailing, sailing, sailing over the sea. They're going into the West and leaving us half-chanting the words. Sam is reciting poetry. Sam is making up poetry. Sam is less prosy than his father. And here we see, in part, the influence of Bilbo Baggins on the younger generation. Ted Sandyman is clearly an outlier here. He's clearly, he's, he's winning a few cheap points at Sam's expense here in the bar, but Sam seems to be representative of a more progressive Hobbit culture. Certainly when we meet Marion Pippin, we're going to see that, that, that progressive spirit embodied again. We're going to get the sense that actually it isn't that weird for Frodo to go on long walks. We can be worried about him specifically because he's going on longer walks and by himself more often, but we're not worried about him going on walks. We're not worried about him really talking with dwarves, about him getting news. Merry and Pippin are interested in things throughout the Shire and interested in things even possibly beyond the Shire. Sam, the most blue-collar hobbit, the son of the gaffer, you know, who is taking part in the family business that has run now for, well, I guess, I guess the gaffer didn't inherit the family business. He was apprenticed, that's fine. But, But Sam is now taking over for his father. He is now, you know absolutely representative of what a blue collar hobbit should be, of what a working class hobbit should be. He, he's almost, almost, you know, paradigmatic. Uh, he's almost paradigmatic of of that kind of, of role in this society. And yet he is moved by elves. He is connected with fantasy and with fairy. He wants these stories and is connected to with poetry. This is absolutely vital. Um, yeah, good. Tom says, it's interesting for Bilbo as the landowner type to be so influential in the community for poetry and prose and to instill the gift to others to open up the joy of words and language. Tom, that is beautifully put. Um, It is, though we must remember that Bilbo, while a landowner, while a gentle hobbit, is not a conventional gentle hobbit. Bilbo does not have the respect of his neighbors and peers. He has fame, and fame is a very different thing. Bilbo is now, despite his integration of Baggins and Took Bilbo culturally speaking in terms of his reputation is much more like his mother than he is like his father Bilbo is unexpected Bilbo is unconventional and Bilbo is provocative so while it is true that that as a gentle hobbit as a landowner and again we talked a little about this last time landowner question mark we can just append a little question mark to that every time we say it because we don't really know for sure but it seems most likely um as, as a landowner, as, as a gentle hobbit, Bilbo is kind of pushing back against the bounds of his social structure. But as a took, as an adventurer, as a poet, Bilbo is absolutely embodying that disruptive kind of, of I guess not, well, I was going to say not revolutionary, but I think this maybe is actually revolutionary. I think it's just a very quiet hobbit revolution. I think that teaching Sam to read and teaching Sam to love elves, once this power has been unleashed, and when I say love elves, I don't just mean love elves i mean well to see fairy in the world you know raise your eyes a little bit beyond the bounds of the shire that is very difficult to contain again it's very difficult to to recapture that after it has been unleashed so bilbo has had i, I would argue a quietly revolutionary effect yes yes Oh, uh, Princess Ostrich says, we have to define Tooks, bags, and Brandybucks now, because we have now much more Brandybuck in our Hobbits than anything else. Yeah, we'll talk a little about Brandybucks, I guess, when we introduce Merry and Pippin, when we get a chance to uh, to talk about the Hobbit families and, and what we're supposed to take from each of these each of these things. Yes, the Brandybucks are pretty great, though. Um, also, that is a fantastic surname. I've never met anyone in real life with the last name Brandybuck, but... I, a, I could believe that I could. Like, like, I don't think I'm ever going to meet a Baggins. I don't think I'm ever going to meet a Took, but there is a chance somewhere out there in the world there are actual Brandy Bucks, and I would love to meet them. And then maybe, I don't know, ask if they can adopt me or something like that. This is there and back again, episode 492. I'm still working my way through the Silmarillion. I'm Alistair Brandy Buck. I mean, pretty good, right? Pretty good. All right. Good. <laughs> the Skylar sisters, but the took cousins is heroes and forests. <laughs> I don't know which is which. I don't know quite how we match that. Yes. Kate says Quiet Hobbit Revolution, band name. Called it. I like that. <laughs> All right. Um Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Melissa says, oh oh Dai is calling out um, Dai is calling out something about hippies. I lost that thread. YouTube just moved as I was doing it. Uh, But something about, yes, yes, uh, hippie sympathies here. And Melissa said, that's an interesting point. I heard an NPR broadcast on Tolkien and his popularity with hippies because of the environmental message. Tolkien's environmental message is oftentimes overstated. I will say no more than that. Right now, we will have plenty of opportunity in the Two Towers to talk about how Tolkien views the environment. Um... It is easy to to casually take Tolkien's position on the environment a step or a couple of steps too far. We must remember that Tolkien's vision of utopia is the Shire that it is manicured and contained and loved and respected. Yes, and one of the worst things that will happen in the, sh- in the Shire later, one of the worst things that will be done by Ted Sandyman later in the story, is the cutting down of the trees that shade the Bywater Road. This is one of the worst things that will happen in the Shire. And, and it's easy to infer from that a certain kind of environmentalism from Tolkien. But we must remember that Tolkien saw the environment as... Something which ought to be. Mm, I don't even necessarily want to get into this, you guys. I feel like I'm going to be berated with through email. Tolkien's vision of Utopia was a cultivated and manicured and agrarian landscape. He appreciated the wild places like the Old Forest, like Mirkwood, but they were outside of his experience. They, they, they should be outside of human experience. They should be set aside and be apart. That is fundamentally different. Tolkien wanted to, or believed that we should, create spaces in the world for elves, that that elves should be allowed to to persist there. So his environmentalism is strong in that regard. He would have been, I think, firmly in favor, for example, of of the setting up of national parks or of of bracketing areas of, of the natural landscape and leaving them alone. But in human society and human culture and human community the environment is there to to serve us it should be cultivated and cared for he he was not as rampantly hippie as some of the hippies decided that he was I'll put it that way maybe maybe we'll return to that when we get to the ants I promise (laughs) okay let's do this uh yes excellent excellent um so okay We've had um we've had the scene with Sam and, and Ted Sandyman. And then we have one of my favorite transitions in the book. I said that the scene with Sam and, and Ted is is bracketed beautifully because we kind of move into it beautifully from the narration. And then we move out of it in this this gore, it, it's very unlike. Anything else that I can remember reading in Tolkien, as we move out of the the Green Dragon and we have Sam walking home, whistling thoughtfully, he's walking home under the starlit sky. This is this beautiful kind of peaceful image. And rather than a cut, we actually kind of pan away from Sam up the hill to Bag End, where we are told that Gandalf has returned. This is huge. This is crucial. This is so important. But we do it so fluidly that it almost feels it almost feels as though it's just a natural part. It's this unfolding story. We're getting this sense of of history unfolding as it should. And and obviously, if you've read the Eino if you know the kind of, from the elven perspective, the, the theological underpinnings of this entire world, the idea that the story is unfolding as it should, the idea that the song is unfolding as it should, is, of course, perfectly acute. That That, that is perfectly appropriate. So we move very quietly from sound. We get this sweep up the hill to Bag End. And then we get one of the most interesting... Edits, I suppose, a kind of a kind of uh, edit of of linear time that we're going to get in the entire book. Because Gandalf shows up, he hasn't been around for years. He shows up, he talks with Frodo all through the night, but we pick up the following morning after Gandalf has apparently told Frodo quite a lot about Sauron and 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 uh, Mordor and and the coming war and terrible things. We don't get that direct account from Gandalf, which I always find fascinating because we pick up the following morning with the history of the ring. In Eregion, long ago, many elven rings were made, magic rings, as you call them, and they were, of course, of various kinds, some more potent and some less. The lesser rings were only essays in the craft before it was full grown, and to the elven smiths they were but trifles, yet still, to my mind, dangerous for mortals. But the great rings, the rings of power, they were perilous, a mortal Frodo who keeps one of the great rings does not die, but he does not grow or obtain more life. He merely continues until at last every minute is a weariness. And if he is off and if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he fades. He becomes in the end invisible permanently, and walks in the twilight under the eye of the dark power that rules the rings. Yes, yeah, sooner or later Later, if he is strong or well-meaning to begin with, but neither strength nor good purpose will last, sooner or later the dark power will devour him. "'How terrifying!' said Frodo. There was another long silence. The sound of Sam Gamgee cutting the lawn came in from the garden. "'How long have you known this?' asked Frodo at length. "'How much did Bilbo know?' "'Bilbo knew no more than he told you, I'm sure,' said Gandalf. "'He would certainly never have passed on to you anything that he thought would be a danger, even though I promised to look after you.' He thought the ring was very beautiful and very useful at need, and if anything was wrong or queer, it was himself. He said that it was growing on his mind, and he was always worrying about it, but he did not suspect that the ring itself was to blame. Though he had found out the thing needed looking after, it did not seem always of the same size or weight. It shrank or expanded in an odd way and might suddenly slip off a finger when it had been tight." Two quick things here that we absolutely must observe. One important, one curious. Let's do the curious one first. How long have you known this? Asked Frodo at length, and how much did Bilbo know? Bilbo you know no more than he told you. Well, thanks, Gandalf. You sure did answer the second part of that question. How long has Gandalf known? This is one of the most interesting and, and potentially frustrating things about this chapter of the Lord of the Rings of this chapter will make Gandalf seem like a doofus. A casual reading of this chapter will make it seem as though Gandalf never figured out the ring that Bilbo was carrying or or figured out the ring that Bilbo was carrying only after 70 years. That I do not think is true. We'll look into the specifics of that. We'll get a better account in the next slide. But for now, let's just pay attention to this. How long have you known this and how much did Bilbo know? Gandalf answers the latter question, but not the former. Question. Here's another interesting detail. We talk here in the second paragraph about mortals who keep the Great Rings. So we know that Gandalf has identified this as a Great Ring. We know that before Gandalf shows up in the Shire, he knows. And this is distinct only because it seems as though in the movie adaptation that Gandalf was unsure, that there was a final test. But there is no question at all that Gandalf knows exactly what this ring is before he returns to the Shire this time. He knows exactly what it is. But what's interesting here, and and I hadn't really caught this until this reading, in this second paragraph, um, if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he fades. He becomes in the end invisible permanently and walks in the twilight under the eye of the dark power that rules the rings. Do the great rings all make you invisible? Well, no. There's certainly no account of... Any of the other rings of the nine or the seven or the three, there's no account of those rings making anyone invisible. That's not what they do. They do grant longer life. That was the deal. That was why Sauron gave the nine rings to mortal man. He said, hey, 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 how do you guys feel about living forever? Firmly on the pro side, let me give you these magic rings. They're pretty cool. That was, And, and of course, the human quest for immortality has always been problematic uh, within the bounds of Middle Earth. So the rings here, it would seem, do not make one invisible. One ring makes you invisible, and even then, well, it's curious. We know from the Siege of Barad-dûr that Sauron was not invisible when he was wearing the ring. It does not seem likely that Sauron would need a ring that would make him invisible. It seems as though Sauron would still want to be, you know, present. He's not the sneaking around, stealing bread from his neighbor's type. And we're going to get a very different perspective on this as we move into the explanation of Gollum. So all I want to do here is put a pin in this and, and say that I consider this proof when, when, when um, though Gandalf here is talking about the great rings, if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, uses the ring, if he is talking about the great rings as he was in the previous sentence, then we must assume that all of the great rings make him invisible, which does not seem to be the case. In that, th- I guess, the third line of the second paragraph there on the slide, if he often uses the ring to make himself invisible, he's talking about the one ring. He already knows at this point. This is another piece of evidence that he already knows that he's, uh, that he's uh, talking about the one ring. Uh, Princess Ostrich, Sauron sne- sneaking around Baradur, stealing apple pie. I love that. Yes. Yes. Um, would the ring make anyone who wears it invisible or just mortals, asks Austen. Uh, that's a really interesting question, we'll get to that in just a moment. In fact, we'll get to that, I think. No, I guess it won't be the next slide, but we will get to that when we talk about Gollum um, because we, there's, there's a very telling line there. Yes. Okay. Let's, let's uh, move on to the next slide I really am. I really am running so long. Okay. How long have you known? How long have you known all this? Asked Frodo again. "'Known?' said Gandalf. "'I have known much that only the wise know, Frodo. "'But if you mean known about this ring, "'well, I still do not know, one might say. "'There is a last test to make, "'but I no longer doubt my guess. "'When did I first begin to guess?' "'He mused, searching back in memory. "'Let me see. "'It was in the year that the White Council "'drove the dark power from Mirkwood, "'just before the Battle of Five Armies "'that Bilba found his ring. "'A shadow fell on my heart then, "'though I did not know yet what I feared.' I wondered often how Gollum came by a great ring, as it plainly was. That, at least, was clear from the first. Then I heard Bilbo's strange story of how he had won it, and I could not believe it. When I at last got the truth out of him, I saw at once that he had been trying to put his claim to the ring beyond doubt. Much like Gollum with his birthday present. The lies were too much alike for my comfort. Clearly the ring had an unwholesome power that set to work on its keeper at once. That was the first real warning I I had that all was not well. I told Bilbo often that such rings were better left unused, but he resented it and soon got angry. There was little else I could do. I could not take it from him without doing greater harm, and I had no right to do so anyway. I could only watch and wait. I might perhaps have consulted Salomon the White, but something always held me back. This is one of the more dense slides that we're ever going to cover in The Lord of the Rings, I guess, at least until we get to the Council of Elrond. There is so much going on here. Um... When did I first begin to guess? It was in the year that the White Council drove the dark power from Mirkwood just before the Battle of Five Armies that Bilbo found his ring. A shadow fell on my heart then. So from the first, Gandalf has been concerned about this ring. I wondered often how Gollum came by a great ring as it plainly was. He identified it as a great ring right from the jump. As soon as he knew that Bilbo had a magic ring, he knew that it was a great ring. And there are only a limited number of great rings in the world. He knew that it couldn't be one of the three because the three are protected. We we know where they are. He knew within bounds of certainty that it couldn't be one of the nine. He knew at least that Sauron had retaken the nine from the Nazgul. But as I said, it isn't necessarily the case that, that, he, that Sauron hadn't given out at least one of the nine again. I mean, if you have nine Nazgul, wouldn't you prefer to have 18 Nazgul? Wouldn't that be cool? You build a whole army of the things. I mean, it takes time for these things to work, but still, nonetheless, you can, you know, expend your power again. Sauron does not seem to have done that. We know that three of the dwarf rings were reclaimed by Sauron, and when I say we know, we can put quotation marks around that because we can't really be certain. We have, as far as I know, verifiable information on only one of the dwarf rings, which is the dwarf ring of, of Durin's clan, of, of Thorin's people. And then, of course, there are, there are the four dwarf rings that we're were consumed by dragon fire. We, we believe that that is the case. We believe that they have been destroyed, but we don't know for sure. And here's the thing. In all of this, what is the most likely explanation? The One Ring has been lost for 3,000 years. And the story is that it fell into the Anduin and was swept out to sea. What reason does Gandalf have to believe that it is lying under the Misty Mountains? It is so much more likely under the Misty Mountains, you guys, that what Bilbo has found is one of the dwarven rings. Well, this raises the question again. Would the dwarf ring make you invisible? Because that is the quality that the ring possesses. Would the dwarf ring make a dwarf invisible? Would, would a dwarf ring, make, or would one of the seven have any power at all? Is Is this believable? Well, maybe, maybe not. Let me see here. Um, Oh, as Emily has just posted in the YouTube chat because the YouTube chat is, is maybe a minute behind me. Golem was, after all, right at the heart of the mountain, logical place for a dwarf ring. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. But we're, we're back again to this question. Well, do all the rings make you invisible? Well, maybe... As I said, we're going to have, a, uh, we're going to have an interesting uh, perspective on that in just a few minutes. So then Gandalf draws the connection between Bilbo's story of how he had won the ring, the lie that Bilbo tells in the first place, and then he equates that with the story that Gollum tells him, Gollum's birthday present, and we'll understand how it is that, that Gandalf knows that story in, in just a little bit. Clearly the ring had an unwholesome power that set to work on its keeper at once. That was the first real warning I had that all was not well. Immediate. That's Immediate. So Gandalf has been suspicious of this ring for the better part of a century, effectively. But what's really important, there are two details right at the end here, which, which are really, really significant, and one of them to me unlocks the whole question of what Gandalf has been doing this whole time. Let's look at the second first. Uh, I might perhaps have consulted Saruman the White, but something always held me back. Those of us who have read The Lord of the Rings before might suspect that Gandalf doesn't entirely trust Saruman the White. But that can't be true because Gandalf is about to dash to Orthanc and tell Saruman the White everything. He is about to go and disclose every detail to Saruman. If he didn't trust him, if he was in any way skeptical of Saruman's loyalty, of Saruman's goodness, then he wouldn't do that thing. So why doesn't he go to Saruman? I think it's because Saruman's the expert. I think it's because Saruman is the ring expert. He knows all about the rings. Gandalf doesn't necessarily want, as a junior member of his order, he doesn't necessarily want to go to Saruman and say, hey, you know how the One Ring has been you know, lost for 3,000 years? You know how it is now gone, how it is effectively destroyed, and how no one will ever get it again? Let me tell you about my buddy Bilbo, because he maybe has it. Does that sound weird? Does that sound okay? I think that is what holds Gandalf back and also perhaps a desire for secrecy, which is the more important part of this this concluding thought here. If Gandalf is sure that Bilbo has a ring of power, one of the great rings, if Gandalf is sure even that Bilbo has the one ring, what is he going to do? He can't tell Bilbo that that's what he has because, well, if it were, if the ring works through conscious corruption, being aware that you are being corrupted would presumably only hasten the process. He can't take the ring from Bilbo because to take the ring would be an act of violence, and we know what happens to people who take the ring with violence. We know, we are about to be told what what would happen to Gandalf if he were to claim the ring for his very own. It would be disastrous. So Gandalf can't take the ring. He can't compel Bilbo to give it up to anyone else. He can't trust anyone else. The possession of Bilbo Baggins in the Shire is actually the best thing for the ring conceivable. That that is the best and safest place for the ring, period. This is why I think Gandalf has known about the ring for so much longer, doesn't tell Bilbo, doesn't tell Frodo, urges them to keep it secret, keep it safe, but doesn't take any further action. Because what action could he possibly take? This is an unfathomably dangerous magical artifact. I'm going to leave it in the best possible hands, in the best possible place, somewhere that, as far as I know, the enemy has never heard of. The enemy doesn't know about hobbits, doesn't know about the Shire. There's no reason the enemy would look here. There's no malign presence within the Shire at all, even as the world outside is growing darker. The Bounders and the Rangers are keeping the Shire safe. There is no better place. So for me, it is a common criticism. What did Gandalf know? When did he know it? What the heck? For me, it is clear that Gandalf has known for a very long time and that his choice to leave the ring with Bilbo wasn't uncertainty. It was purpose. He is keeping the ring safe until he can be completely sure, until he can figure out the parts of the narrative, until he can put all the pieces together. Gandalf is moving cautiously. If there's a criticism of Gandalf, it is perhaps that he is moving too cautiously, but he had to go and find out the what and the how of it all. He needed to be sure. And this is part of the final test. Yeah, good. Um, Yeah, here Zimbard says, maybe he fears what Saruman would do to Frodo and what it would mean for hobbits in the Shire. It is possible that that's the case, yes. It is possible also, uh, we'll get a perspective on this when we meet Saruman, um, that Gandalf's preoccupation with hobbits has made him a somewhat ridiculous figure, that perhaps he doesn't want to, I mean, I'm, I'm almost hesitant to attribute these kind of very human motivations to Gandalf, but you know, It is possible that he is going to go to Saruman and say, so, you're the ring expert. Everybody knows the ring has been lost for 3,000 years. I'm really into hobbits, though, and it turns out that a hobbit might have the ring. That's fine. He might feel ridiculous. This might just be, be, you know, shame. This might be embarrassment that that prevents him from going to, to talk to Saruman, though shame and embarrassment absolutely motivated by Chance of chance you call it. Absolutely motivated by good fortune. It is a really good decision for Gandalf not to go and talk to Saruman earlier in the process. And that works out beautifully for everyone, in fact. So, you know, perhaps there's a, a new catastrophic nudge happening here, too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm really into hobbits, though, is getting quoted back to me in the uh, in the YouTube chat. Yes. Yeah. Just just super into hobbits, you guys. You know, everybody has their thing. It's fine. It's fine. Um Let's talk then about uh, the threat to the Shire and of, course the, uh, and, of course, the giving up of the ring. Ever since Bilbo left, I have been deeply concerned about you and about all these charming, absurd, helpless hobbits. It would be a grievous blow to the world if the dark power overcame the Shire, if all your kind, jolly, stupid bulgers and hornblowers, boffins, bracegirdles, and the rest, not to mention the ridiculous bagginses, became enslaved... Frodo shuddered. But why should we be, he asked, and why would he want such slaves? To tell you the truth, replied Gandalf, I believe that hitherto, hitherto, mark you, he has entirely overlooked the existence of hobbits. You should be thankful, but your safety has passed. He does not need you, he has many more useful servants, but he won't forget you again. And hobbits as miserable slaves would please him far more than hobbits happy and free. There is such a thing as malice and revenge— "'Revenge?' said Frodo. "'Revenge for what? "'I still don't understand what all this has to do "'with Bilbo and myself and our ring.' "'It has everything to do with it,' said Gandalf. "'You do not know the real peril yet, but you shall. "'I was not sure of it myself when I was last here, "'but the time has come to speak. "'Give me the ring for a moment.' Frodo took it from his breeches' pocket, where it was clasped to a chain that hung from his belt. He unfastened it and handed it slowly to the wizard. It felt suddenly very heavy, as if either it or Frodo himself was in some way reluctant for Gandalf to touch it we get again the ring taking agency the ring being suggestive to frodo it gets heavy either it or frodo himself was in some way reluctant for gandalf to touch it again why why on earth would the ring not want to be possessed by gandalf if the ring's desire is either to corrupt the most magnificent and greatest souls possible or if the ring's desire is to to get back to sauron Why wouldn't it want to be possessed by Gandalf and in turn possess Gandalf? Why wouldn't it want that? The ring's agenda here is still a little curious. There is a really interesting, um, we, we talked a little here about the enemy's ignorance of the Shire, the enemy's ignorance of of uh, hobbits and the fact that that, that has now passed. Uh, I would call out here the, the the great affection with which Gandalf speaks in the first chapter, these charming, absurd, helpless hobbits. If your kind, jolly, stupid bulgers and hornblowers and buffins and brace girdles, not to mention the ridiculous Bagginses, became enslaved. The affection and warmth with which Gandalf is speaking, he is clearly, clearly, mindful he is cognizant of the great virtue of hobbits which is their smallness the fact that hobbits are not great the fact that hobbits do not value wealth or power he sees their very absurdity this charming absurdity as a thing of value itself and he makes that clear in in the third paragraph here on the slide you should be thankful but your safety has passed he does not need you he has many more useful servants but he won't forget you again even in the service of the enemy, even as slaves dominated by Sauron, the hobbits would be pretty useless. They're never going to be great. They are always going to be small, and that gives them value, that gives them purpose, that gives them crucially identity. One of the things that I wanted to pull out though is in the fourth paragraph there, where Frodo responds, revenge, revenge for what? I still don't understand what all this has to do with Bilbo and myself and our ring. And I've never caught this before while reading the book. This literally jumped out at me this morning as I was prepping for this live session. Our ring? Who talks about the ring as as being possessed by more than one person? I don't think Bilbo ever refers to it as our ring, talking about himself and Gollum. But Frodo is still yielding some part of ownership of the ring to Bilbo. And that makes me wonder about the ring's influence over Frodo. Is it possible that Frodo is, in some sense, incompletely a ring-bearer? Is it possible that, in some sense, Frodo hasn't completely taken ownership of it, that, that in his mind, in his heart, the ring still, in part, belongs to Bilbo? I found that really fascinating. As, as Melissa's calling out here, yes, our ring, yes, yes. Princess Ostrich says, he offers the ring because he, because he is afraid of it, but when the moment comes, he doesn't want to give it up. Yes, yes. Poor Frodo, no one wants his present. <laughs> <laughs> Jackie says, Rhoda keeps offering up the ring and no one will take it. Good, good. Oh, and I am, this is beautifully put. I love Gandalf's massive respect for people so much less powerful or knowledgeable than himself. His values are so different from Saruman's. This is absolutely a, um, this is absolutely a, a virtue common to the great the great and the good. And we talked about this last time as we were talking about Bilbo and the way that Bilbo condescends to the gaffer, the way that Bilbo shares his, his kindness and his charity and his, his you know, best intentions, his best virtues with someone of a different social order. He is looking down upon the gaffer, but not in the judgmental, you know, uh, not in the way that we would normally associate that term today. Bilbo condescends, Gandalf condescends, Galadriel and Elrond condescend. They look down upon with kindness and with grace, and that is crucial. Yes, yeah. It's interesting. There are a couple of people here suggesting that, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that's really interesting. There are a couple of people suggesting that uh, that's one of the reasons that the ring doesn't go to Gandalf or doesn't want to go to Gandalf is that Gandalf is simply too powerful. It is interesting to note, therefore, that Gandalf has no doubt Gandalf has no doubt at all that the ring would corrupt him. That's fascinating, yes. Yes, as Nicole says, in the sun to the daisy way. Yes, absolutely right. Great callback to, to Riddles in the Dark there. Yes, yes. That eye is like to this eye, except in low place instead of high place. That's exactly it. You and me, we're connected. We're kind of the same, even though I'm up here and you're down there. That doesn't diminish you. This is just this is just who we are. That kind of condescension is, is vital. Nicole, great call out, yes. All right. Let's uh, keep moving. I just realized that I had to slide up that whole time. That's just fine. Let's keep moving forward. Um, And this is the final reveal. This is, well, this is it. He paused and then said slowly in a deep voice, this is the master ring, the one ring to rule them all. This is the one ring that he lost many ages ago to the great weakening of his power. He greatly desires it, but he must not get it. Frodo sat silent and motionless. Fear seemed to stretch out a vast hand like a dark cloud rising in the east and looming up to engulf him. This ring, he stammered. Oh, how on earth did it come to me? Ah, said Gandalf. That is a very long story. The beginnings lie back in the black years, which only the lawmasters now remember. If I were to tell you that tale, we should still be sitting here when spring had passed into winter. But last night I told you of Sauron the Great, the Dark Lord. The rumors that you have heard are true. He has indeed arisen again and left his hold in Mirkwood and returned to his ancient fastness in the Dark Tower of Mordor. That name even you hobbits have heard of, like a shadow on the borders of old stories. Always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And already, Frodo, our time is beginning to look black. The enemy is fast becoming very strong. His plans are far from ripe, I think, but they are ripening. We shall be hard put to it. We shall be very hard put to it, even if it were not for this dreadful chance. I want to call out uh, a little incidental detail here, an example of Gandalf's condescension, an example of Gandalf's grace and kindness. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. It's possible, syntactically, that Gandalf was talking about himself. I too wish that this had not happened in my time, said Gandalf. I too think this kind of sucks and could really use a vacation, said Gandalf. But he's not. Because Gandalf's entire purpose in Middle-earth is to fight this fight. Gandalf's entire nature is to fight this fight. To say, I exist to fight the shadow, but I kind of wish the shadow hadn't arisen during my time, is, is lunacy so when Gandalf says so do I he is saying I too Frodo wish that this had not happened during your time and so do all who live to see such things but that is not for them to decide all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us this is beautiful this is as stirring a call to heroism, as stirring a call to adventure as you are going to get in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. And that is not in any way to diminish some of the outright calls to adventure that we will get in due course. Those are magnificent. But this to me is, though in a quieter, more hobbitish way, equally magnificent. So we get a recapitulation of the story again. We get final confirmation. Sauron the Great, the Dark Lord, has left his hold in Mirkwood, which is a curiously coy bit of phrasing from Gandalf there. Uh, Me and the White Council, we stopped by Mirkwood. We kind of kicked his ass. And then he ran away back to back to Mordor. Turns out he might not have actually ran away. He might have just pretended to run away so that we thought he was defeated. Maybe he wasn't defeated. Maybe this was all just part of his plan in the first place. But whatever. Me and my guys, we dropped by Dol Guldur and we took care of business. Well, no. Gandalf says he left his hold in Mirkwood and returned to the ancient fastness in the Dark Tower of Mordor. That name even you hobbits have heard of like a shadow on the borders of old stories. <sighs> Pretty good. Pretty good, you guys. Let's uh gosh I have so much left to discuss we're never going to get through this. You know what? It is now 10:30 um my time. It is now 9:30 Eastern. Um 11:30 Eastern. I do apologize. I think what we're going to do is take 2 weeks to do this, you guys. I think that's the only way, because we still have Isildur and the Gladden Fields, and we still have Smeagol and Eagle and we still have Pity and Death, and we have Don't Tempt Me With The Ring, and we have Sam, and we have all of this great material. I think maybe we'll just put this off until next week. I'm literally halfway through uh, my reading this week. So um, that sounds fine, right? Let's Let's maybe take some questions from the YouTube chat before we wrap up. 8.30 here, says Jackie. Jackie, you're on the West Coast, right? You're in California. That's a good place to be yes called it jackie said (laughs) you will never go broke betting that i will run long in seminar sessions this is where we are yes um yes yes let let me see i'm I'm pulling yes uh, as karen says gandalf's time is pretty much all the time so yeah alistair yes As, as princess ostrich says well how could anything not happen in gandalf's time yes Yes, David says, I love Gandalf here. No point in complaining about living in dark times, just time to rise to the challenge. Yes, this is an opportunity for, for heroism. Good. Tom describes this as the most beautiful line in Lord of the Rings. All we have to decide. Yes, yes, good. Good. Excellent. And, and if we're going to double up, if we're going to, uh, yeah, if we're going to push back uh, the back half of this discussion, I think I'll also go back and we'll look at the uh, the discovery of the inscription on the ring, too, because I really wanted to do a little close reading there. That's fine. Here, Bart says it's 1130. Wait, 1130? Oh, yes, Eastern. That's fine. Good. Dinner time here in Europe. This is great. This is so much fun. Next week, I should say, we're going to be back to our, um, hey, let me see if I can skip through the rest of the slides that I'm not going to get to today. Um, next week, uh, we're going to have a session at 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, I'm gonna put up the slide even though it's now wrong. We're not going to cover chapter three, you guys. We're going to cover the back half of chapter two next week. But 4 p.m. Eastern, because next Thursday evening, I am giving my first Point North Media class. I am giving the class How and Why to Read Fantasy Fiction. And registration for that class is still open. If you are interested in writing fantasy fiction, if you are interested in in getting more out of fantasy fiction, if you enjoy reading fantasy fiction, then you can still register for that class. It is a two hour live class. it basically works like one of these, except it's it's less conversational, uh, though there will still be questions available. Uh, you guys can still ask questions in the YouTube chat. It's a little less conversational. It's a little more dense, um, more instructive, I suppose, more didactic, I suppose. Um, but I'm going to spend two hours basically looking at the history of fantasy fiction, uh, the evolution of fantasy fiction, of course, the influence of Tolkien over fantasy fiction, and also how fantasy stories Work. What is it that distinguishes a fantasy story from other kinds of stories? What is it that 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 gives a fantasy story its shape? What are the archetypal structures and plots and characters associated with fantasy fiction? So it is intended. I mean, primarily for writers. If you write fantasy fiction, it's going to be invaluable. But if you love fantasy fiction as a reader, then you'll also get a uh, get. I, I think a lot out of it. Let me show you the uh, the slide here. It's not really a slide. It's my actual uh, web browser here. Magic and metaphor, how and why to write fantasy fiction. This is available on pointnorthmedia.com. You can head on over there and register. Now, there are a few spots still open, but only a few. I think maybe... mm. Maybe four or five, I can maybe lift that to six or seven, but then it starts getting unwieldy and I want to be able to, uh, to engage directly with, with the, the class. So please, uh, if you're interested in that, head on over to pointnorthmedia.com and register today. Let me cancel that slide. So that's going to be next Thursday. So we're going to do there and back again at 4 p.m. Eastern and then the class starts at 8 p.m. Eastern. That is going to be a really fun day for me. I hope that you'll all be able to make it. Thank you so much for being with me this week. Yeah, everyone who predicted that we weren't going to get through chapter two, congratulations. I can't imagine how many weeks it's going to take us to get through the Council of Elrond at this rate. I mean, it it can only be one. It can only be one, you guys. We'll do our best. All right. (laughs) That's great. And then I should say, yes, the following week... um, It's 4 p.m. for for there and back again next week, next Thursday. The following week, we will definitely do an 8 p.m. evening session. We will uh, get back on our regular schedule so that uh, those of you who can't make it during the day will be able to hang out and do this whole thing. All right. These early morning Thursday sessions keep throwing me off, says Josh Rims. I assume we're just starting. Nope. Sorry. Not so much. Ah, interesting. Shane says, if Tolkien invented the fantasy genre, what did he think he was writing? Well, he thought he was writing history. He thought he was writing myth. He thought he was writing, I mean, fairy stories. Uh, Tolkien's intent, and, and I don't think it's entirely fair to say that Tolkien single-handedly invented the fantasy genre. I'll be talking about this next week too. But uh, I do think it's fair to say that that his intent was never to write fantasy, quote unquote. There, there was no, I think, modern conception of fantasy at that time. He created this idea of 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 you know mythic history and 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 fantasy adventure there were other kinds of stories that did similar things but he was the one who kind of unified these ideas into what we think of as contemporary fantasy and then that basically through the back half of the 20th century has become codified and we're now moving into an area which is uh, into a period which is really interesting because we're seeing in some ways the the purposeful disassembly of of that kind of of codified structure that 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 Tolkienian high fantasy kind of reached its peak, and now we're seeing. I mean, we saw the initial response, and this is always how how you know genres evolve. This is always how stories evolve. A particular trend comes along, it rises, it reaches its peak, and then we get the obvious subversion of that. So instead of high fantasy, we got the rise of low fantasy. But now what we're getting is like a more purposeful deconstruction of high fantasy and and uh, uh, a unification of high and low fantasy. We get some really interesting writers like uh, like Patrick Rothfuss, I think, is doing some really interesting work in this area. Our uh, Scott Becker is doing some really interesting work in this area, though we're also continuing, you know, fantasy being as broad and as divergent as it is where we're also continuing different threads different strands that would be in any other genre the whole genre but fantasy is is enormously sprawling i can't talk about all of this right now because i'm going to talk about this next week if you're interested in more discussion like that head on over to pointnorthmedia.com and sign up for the class guys thank you all so much for being with me here today as i said next week 4 p.m eastern we're going to do the second half of this chapter pinky swear we're going to get through it i promise thanks so much for hanging out i'll talk to you all again soon until then take care